Good to see you guys here this morning. Welcome once again to City Church. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Troy and I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are going to do a little bit different today. We're going to go right into our message. You've been with us. We're in part three of our series on the Lord's Prayer. And so what we've been doing each week is is standing and, and saying this prayer together. So if you guys would, go ahead and stand your feet. I know you just got comfortable. Uh, I won't make you do a bunch of calisthenics, but if we can stand up for just a moment uh, and read through this, go ahead and put that on the screen for us. Um, we're going to read through this out loud. We'll start at the Our Father part, um, and then we'll pray after we're done. So it says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father God, I thank you so much for this incredible prayer that Jesus modeled for us to teach us how to pray. God, we ask that you would help us to access this today, God, to download it into our hearts, into our spirits. Uh, Lord, we thank you that that Jesus prayed that your kingdom would come. And so we agree with that prayer today, God. We pray that your kingdom would come, even here at City Church today, that we would be an outpost to your kingdom, a representation of your kingdom. God, that in our service today, your will would be done here just as it is in heaven. God, your perfect will would be done. We thank you for what you're gonna do for everyone you've brought here today. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. All right, now you can really sit down and get comfortable. Uh, man, we're... Thrilled once again that you're here. Uh, we've been doing this series, we've called it Our Father in Heaven, and, and going each week through, through the different pieces of this prayer. And so we discovered uh, in week one, just by way of recap and, and to bring you in if you haven't been here, discovered that these are probably the most quoted, most recited words in human history. For 2,000 years, the Lord's Prayer has been memorized and recited um, all over the world in different languages and different translations. Uh, There are monasteries where monks will quote this prayer 6, 8, 12 times a day, even today. Uh, There are are sports teams that quote this every time they they play. There's so many people who've who've memorized this and recited it. But we we discovered that Jesus' purpose for us in giving us the Lord's Prayer was less to help us memorize something and more to give us some guidelines on how to talk to his father. See, the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, the, these disciples, they were, they were raised Jewish. They were raised in the Jewish faith. They had prayed th- hundreds, thousands, perhaps even ten thousands of times before they encountered Jesus. And yet they encounter Jesus and they begin to follow Jesus and they begin to listen to Jesus pray. And they're like, I don't even know how to pray like that. I've got no idea how to talk to God the way you do. So they said, teach us how to pray like you, Jesus. And so Jesus begins, and before he gets into the prayer, he says, this then is how you should pray. And I know we've talked about it every week, and I hate to belabor the point, but I think it's so important. He says, this is how you should pray. In other words, he didn't say this is what we should pray. He didn't say, I want you to memorize this and quote it every day. I don't think there's anything wrong with memorizing it. I don't think there's anything wrong with quoting it. But Jesus' purpose in the Lord's Prayer was not that we would memorize a prayer. It's that we would learn how to talk to his father, that we would learn how to approach him, how to come to him. And so this prayer is a guideline for us. It's a model for us with with different pieces that we should incorporate into our prayer lives. So we discovered uh, that the first word that Jesus prays in the prayer is our. 
So there's a corporate element to this model prayer that, that Jesus is teaching us. We shouldn't just pray by ourselves, although we should. We shouldn't just have private time with God, although we absolutely should have that. But there should be time where we come together in prayer. There should be time where we're gathered together, that there's, there's power when the saints of God gather in prayer. And I believe that should be more than just Sunday morning. Uh, that, that we should be praying corporate prayers in our homes, in our workplaces, at our schools, that we should be gathering with other believers and, and pursuing and seeking God. So he says, our, and then he says, Father, to teach us that when we talk to God, we come to him out of our relationship as his children, uh, that, that we don't have to cower in his presence. We don't come to him as these, these broken, lost, messed up sinners, which we are, but we actually come to him as his children, welcomed in his presence, that, that he's invited us into his presence, and we can go there boldly and confidently. And then he says, our Father in heaven, reminding us of where God is. So yes, he's our Father, and yes, we have close relationship with him, but let's not forget, he sits on the throne. He is El Elyon, right? The Most High God. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's the one who has the authority. He's Adonai, the God who is Lord. He's the one who can answer our prayers, so he reminds us of God's place. Um, and so we saw that week one. Last week we discovered, uh, as we looked at this next statement, that hallowed be your name. Uh, that hallowed means holy. It means set apart. That his name is different. It's not like any other name. That, that my name is insignificant and it will fade. That my father's name is insignificant and it will fade. But, but God's name is the name that the Bible teaches us has renown. Renown is fame that never fades, fame that never ends, and so that his name is different than every other name, and that it must be hallowed, we must revere it. And then he says, your name, right? So, so what is the name of God? God has many, many names, hundreds of names in scripture, uh, but we looked at seven last week that we can incorporate, as Dwindle mentioned, seven that we could, we could pray and worship God as, as this, because each name gives us a different hint, a different picture of his character, of his nature, of his power. So we saw that, that he is Abba, that he's Daddy. We saw that he's Adonai, that he's Lord. We saw that he is El Elyon, he is the Most High God. That he's El Olam, the everlasting God, the God who never changes. That he's El Shaddai, the almighty God. That he's Elohim, the creator God. That he's Yahweh, the God who is, the God who exists, the God who his name literally is I am, the most frequent name for him in all of the Bible. And so we, we saw that God is all these things. So week one, I asked you for a show of hands on how many participated in the challenge. And I said we were going to do it again. So, so to not be a liar, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to see how many of you participated at all. doesn't mean you did all seven, but I participated in the week two challenge. I worshiped God by one of his names this week. Awesome. Better than week one. We're making progress. All right. So, so that's why we got a seven week series, not a two week series, because we still got some room for improvement. So we're going to, we're gonna, and man, we've had so many people sick. This weather has just destroyed people. I know, man, we've had so many people out and messed up, um, and, and we still have people out today, so we're going to keep praying and believing God for their healing. Um, but today we move on to verse 10. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, next week, we're going to get to verse 11. It says, give us today our daily bread. We're going to take communion next week uh, and, and dive into what it means for God to give us our daily bread. But, but today, I have to confess to you, um, 
As a pastor, you're not supposed to have favorites, uh, but you always do, right? Like, I remember when I was a youth pastor, like, one of the first things that I really wrestled with was I started having students that I liked more than other students. And that's not a good thing, right? Like, as a parent, you shouldn't like one kid more than another kid, but it just happens. Uh, so, so, so what I always told our youth leaders was, like, it's okay to have favorites, but it's not okay to play favorites, Right, like you're gonna naturally like somebody more than you like somebody else, that's just human nature. Uh, but you can't treat them differently, if that makes sense, because you like one better. So, so today's message is my favorite in the series. Hopefully I won't treat it better. Hopefully I'll, I'll approach each of them with the same excitement and passion and, and research and study and prayer. But I love this statement so much. There is so much power. I love that Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, said, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think there's so much power in the, in the kingdom. There's so much power in the idea that we could be a reflection of heaven, that, that the way that things operate in our lives and flow in our world could be a picture of the way that it flows in his. In fact, I love this so much that it's a part of the vision of our church. You see, our, our vision statement is that City Church has a vision to be a church that looks like heaven. And so I want to unpack that for you for just a moment before we dive into this, because I think it's, it's foundational to our identity and our DNA, who we are as a church. So, so we have a vision to be a church that looks like heaven. And for us, we mean three things specifically that that means. Number one for us, that means that we, we have a vision to be a church for all generations, uh, heaven is full of all generations, right? Like every generation throughout human history, there's been a remnant of God's people. There's been a remnant who worshiped God, who knew God, who pursued God. Noah's generation, it was a very small remnant, right? We just, we didn't suffer 40 days and 40 nights of rain, although it felt like it. Uh, but, but Noah did. His generation was very wicked and very far from God. It was just him and his wife and their three sons and their wives who knew God. Eight people who honored God. Sometimes I, I think we feel the, the wickedness and the, the, the junk in our generation, the brokenness in our generation. And, and it, it's very broken, but man, I'm so grateful that I don't live in a generation with only eight believers. I'm so grateful that I live in a generation with, with, with hundreds of thousands and millions of people who love Jesus. We got brothers and sisters all over this world who are pursuing God just as we are. And so we have a vision to be a church for all generations. What that means, obviously, practically, is we can't be a, a church for every generation in human history because most of them are no longer with us. Uh, so practically, it means every generation that's alive today, right? That, that the people that are, that are available to us, we want to have all generations. And if we're being very honest, there have been points in our church history where this has been a vision like something that we're looking to, something we're pursuing, something we see in our future, but it wasn't necessarily what I saw when I looked out from the pulpit, if you know what I mean. Uh, we, we've had seasons in our church where we skewed very young. Now, that's a good thing in one sense because the traditional church or the, the average church skews old. Uh, and, and so we, we're grateful for the opportunity to reach the next generation. We're grateful that God's given us that influence and given us that ability where we can reach young people. We treasure that and we're grateful for that. But even in those seasons when we skewed very young, we, we hungered for an older generation that would bring wisdom, that would bring 
experience, that would bring testimony, that, that would bring uh, the, the ability to intercede, man, that there's value in gray hair. And as I look across here today, I see a lot more gray hair than I used to at City Church. And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad for that. I'm glad I don't see that when I look in the mirror yet. Praise God. But one day, I'll be part of that gray hair group, probably a lot closer than my wife finds them every once in a while, and we won't talk about that. Uh, but, but, but we're moving that direction, right? And so I'm grateful that we have, we've seen over the last 16, 18 months, God bring in an older generation that, that brings that seasoning, that brings that ability to pursue him, that brings that depth and that wisdom and that experience. We need that older generation at our church, amen? And we need them in our body. And so we have a vision to be a church for all generations, but that means also we don't neglect or abandon or forget our call to the younger generation. Man, I guarantee you this, the enemy has not slowed down his pursuit of our younger generation. He's not receded or relented. He's not waved the white flag and said, okay, you can have them, church. He's after our young people. And if the enemy is after our young people, we better be after our young people, church. We better be after the younger generation. We better, let me say this, we better be willing to constantly change and sacrifice our preferences that in order that we can continue to reach a younger generation. That, that's part of maturity, isn't it? That maturity says, hey, the things that I want, the things that I enjoy the most aren't as important to me as the things that someone else may want because I recognize, man, I, I'm further along in my walk with God. It doesn't have to sound exactly the way that I want it to. It doesn't have to look exactly the way that I want it to because I realize, man, we're going after some people that if we don't approach it in a certain way, we're never gonna reach them. And so we gotta be willing to make those sacrifices to reach that younger generation. Now there's also another generation at City Church. There's this, the middle generation, right? The, the, the in-betweens. That's where I see myself, hopefully for a little bit while longer. Uh, in, in that in-between generation, that, that the younger generation brings passion. They bring energy. They bring hope. They bring potential. We talked a few weeks ago about why it's so important. We need new life. We constantly need new life in our church. We got somebody going in and getting induced for labor this Friday, man. Praise God for that. Something about a baby, isn't there? Something about that new life, it's exciting. And so the younger generation brings its own skills, and then us in the middle, we're kind of a blend of the two. We've got a little more wisdom and a little more experience than the younger generation, but maybe a little more energy and a little more passion than the older generation, right? Like, so, so, so we can fill maybe different roles and wear different hats, and we need all those generations as part of our church, as part of our vision to be a church for all generations. Secondly, for us, it means that we're a church for all sinful backgrounds, kind of weird for a church to have a vision with, that involves the word sin, right? If the word wasn't, hey, for to be sinless. Um, but I think this is important. You see, there's a, a church in the New Testament that I identify with a lot, and it's the most jacked up, most messed up one. It's the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is usually seen as like the worst example of a church, but I love the church in Corinth. I love what God did there. And, and I, I want to share with you a passage that Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, writes. And, and it may not start out and make a ton of sense at the beginning, but I think it'll make sense as we go. He says this. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it starts out the first two verses, it's pretty, pretty in your face, pretty strong. 
But then listen to this in verse 11. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. I want this verse to be true of City Church. He says this. He says, and that is what some of you were. Aren't you grateful for were? He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want City Church to be a church where, man, every messed up, jacked up piece of society can come be a part of this thing. Where it doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter your struggle, it doesn't matter your temptation, it doesn't matter your sin, that these doors are wide open and we are welcoming to you. And this is a place where verse 11 can become true. That yes, you were that. You used to be jacked up. You used to be messed up. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been transformed by the blood of Jesus. That's our heart. Now, if we're going to do that, this doesn't just happen. What this means is we've got to be a church that's accepting of people who don't have it all together. That means when they walk in here with their brokenness, they walk in here with their jacked upness, they walk in here still struggling with some of that sin that we can't say, nope, you're not good enough, get back to us when you've got yourself fixed, because that's not Jesus. You know what Jesus does? Jesus accepts us to change us. He does not change us to accept us. It begins with his acceptance. So we got to be a church of acceptance even when people are far from God even when their sin is loud and in your face, even when it's uncomfortable for us, because we believe in a God who restores, and we believe in a God who redeems, and we believe that except for the grace of God, there go I. And many of us, we used to be there. Maybe not on one of the things on that specific list, but in other, some other form of depravity, in some other form of wretchedness, we were all far from God, except for his goodness and his grace, we would still be that today. And so we've got the vision to be a church for all sinful backgrounds, where no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're going through, you're welcome here. In fact, we have this crazy statement, this crazy cultural value here at City Church, where we say you're free to struggle here. You're free to struggle here. Now, that doesn't mean you're free to, to just settle in your sin and camp out in it. What that means is we recognize that sometimes God's restoration is immediate, and man, those are amazing, and we celebrate those stories. But most of the time, God's restoration is a process. And that process a lot of times involves some ups and some downs, some good days and some bad days, some better days and some worse days. And so you're free at City Church to have some worse days. You're free to have some bad days. As long as in the midst of that, you recognize I'm still pursuing God's best. I still want God's best. I still am am, am chasing after his best for me. You're free to struggle here. We don't expect you to have it all together. I certainly do not. So we want to be a church for all generations. We want to be a church for all sinful backgrounds. Number three, the one we probably talk about the most when we talk about being a church that looks like heaven, we want to be a church for all races. We want to be a church for all races. We really want to be a church for all races. And when we say this, just like I said earlier about all generations, this is a vision, right? If I were to look across our congregation Let's just be real. We skew white, right? Like we are, we are a white church, much more so than, than, than what I see in our future. And that's okay that we may not have mastered that yet, but, but this is what we're pursuing. This is what we're praying for. This is what we're believing God for. And this is why it's important. Because Revelation 7 verse 9 says this, talking about heaven, talking about eternity, 
The apostle John is given this vision of what it's going to be like. And he says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude. Heaven's full of people. Don't, don't, don't be one of those people who's like, man, I, I'm so glad we're a small church. Don't be glad we're a small church. Man, be, we, 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 we're going to grow in Jesus' name. We're going to reach more. Why do we want to grow? Because growth means we're reaching people for God's glory. And you know what? Heaven's a place of a great multitude. Aren't you glad there's a lot of people in heaven? Aren't you glad heaven's full? So after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the land, they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, when we get to heaven, we're not going to have white churches and black churches. We're not going to have white service and black service. We're not going to have Hispanic service in the afternoon, right? When we get to heaven, we're going to have church together. We're going to worship Jesus together. We're going to be one family, one tribe, one color, man, as God has, has brought us all together. And so we want to be a church that looks like heaven. Now, practically, again, we can't be a church for every generation in human history. We can't be a church for every language on, on earth right now. So practically, what can we be? We want to be a church that looks like Walmart, right? Because what happens when you go to Walmart? The whole community is there, right? Good, bad, pretty, ugly, like dressed, pajamas, whatever, right? If they're in Olive Branch, they're at Walmart. And you might be like me, you only show up at Walmart kicking and screaming, but eventually you show up there, right? So, so, so the Walmart is the representation of our community, and that's what we want to be. We want to be a reflection of the place where God has planted us. That, man, everybody who's a part of this city, everybody who's a part of this area, whether it be Memphis, DeSoto County, Marshall County, that, that, that they can be welcome here, that there's somebody who looks like them here, that we can worship together. Because Jesus prayed, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we don't necessarily just have to wait for this one day, but we can pursue it now. We can believe for it now. We can pray for it now. And that's where we're at, church. We believe that God's called us to be a church for all generations, a church for all sinful backgrounds, and a church for all colors, a church for all races. Now, as Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth, and as we're going to talk today about what we call kingdom theology, the theology of the kingdom. If you read the book of Matthew, Matthew presents this picture of the kingdom of heaven. It talks a whole lot about the kingdom, that Jesus has come to be the king, and he's come to start a kingdom and bring the kingdom of God to earth. The danger of kingdom theology, as we start to talk about this, is the kingdom is not politically legislative, but spiritually redemptive. You see, the danger is we hear this thing about the kingdom and we think, okay, we got to go make our government work this way. That we got to go legislate all this stuff and we got to make sure that everybody's a Christian and everybody does all this. And, and the whole point of the Old Testament, if you've ever read all the way through the Old Testament, is that that doesn't work. Right? Why did God have to send Jesus? Because creating a whole bunch of laws doesn't work. We can't live up to it on our own. We can't do it. And so we could go change every law in America, every law in Mississippi, every law in Olive Branch to perfectly reflect the Bible. But you know what would happen to people's hearts? Absolutely nothing. 
Because the law cannot legislate spirituality. It can't legislate our hearts. And we can try and we can white knuckle and we can make some progress for a short period of time. But ultimately all have sinned and come short of the glory of God because the law doesn't work. So God sent Jesus. And so I'm not saying politics doesn't matter. I'm not saying not to vote. I'm not saying not to be politically active. If you want to be politically active, that's great. But let me say this very clearly, church. Our energy, our time, our conversation, our motivation as believers should be a whole lot more invested in things of his kingdom than things of earthly kingdoms. And if, if all that we're focused on is getting people to vote a certain way or for a certain candidate or for a certain party or a certain platform, I think we're missing the point. It's not that politics doesn't matter because politics doesn't matter because politics affects people. And God loves people. So I'm not saying politics doesn't matter. What I'm saying is ultimately politics will never save people. Ultimately, politics will never be the solution. Only Jesus can be that. And so I've chosen to leverage my life, not for a political party, not for a political platform, not, not, not for certain political goals. I've chosen to leverage my life to expand God's kingdom. Because I believe that's what we're called to as believers. That's what God has adopted us into his family for. So we're going to talk about, uh, about the kingdom of God, about kingdom theology. And as we do, I want you to make sure you're not hearing, go do all this stuff politically. Because politically, we can accomplish some things, but spiritually, we can accomplish all things. We can do the greatest impact by far, spiritually. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the prophet says this. He says, not by might not by power, not by politics, not by petition, not by legislation, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. What mechanism has God chosen to change the world? The Son of God dying in the place of fallen man, raised to life by the Spirit of God, and then people embrace that Son of God as Savior, he sends his spirit into us to live in us and empowers us to live out heaven on earth. That's the mechanism for changing the world. It's not this party or that party. It's not red. It's not blue. It's not this candidate or that candidate. It's Jesus. And that's what the kingdom is all about. So, so Jesus gives us a picture of this kingdom he's talking about at the beginning of this talk. You see, the, the Lord's Prayer is not isolated. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And his introduction into this sermon is he addressed the multitudes, 5,000 who were fed that day, many, many more probably when you count the women and children. The Beatitudes start like this, and I didn't put it on your screen on purpose because I want you just to lean in and listen to this. This is what Jesus says. This is the picture of the kingdom he paints for us. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. So Jesus, as he's coming to institute his kingdom, he flips the script on us. The vast majority of things he talks about in the Beatitudes are not things that we would list when we're thinking about a a kingdom. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. I don't know about you, but most of those aren't adjectives that I'm lining up to have described to me, right? But Jesus says, this is what I want my kingdom to look like. Not that I want you to be in poverty, but I want you to be poor in spirit. In other words, I want you to recognize that, that everything you have comes from me and from nobody else. Not that I want you to be persecuted, but I want you to live your life in such a way that, that yes, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too because you're so identified in me. You're so found in me. These are the things that he, he chose to define his kingdom as. And they're not things that usually we're real comfortable with. They're not things that we get real excited about. If you've noticed, the amens have gotten a little quiet through this section, right? It's not the most comfortable thing to preach or to talk about, but this is the picture Jesus is painting. This is the kingdom he's praying would come down. This is the way he's asking that his will would be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Think of it this way. When a, when a basketball team goes through a coaching change and the new coach comes in, one of the first things he's going to do is try to instill his values. What does he think is the most important thing, the best way to win basketball games? So, so say the team had an offensive-minded coach before and the new coach is hired as defensive-minded. He, he may decide, you know what, for six weeks we're not even shooting a basketball. All we're going to do is defensive drills and all his players are going to hate him and they're going to wish for the old coach back and practice is going to be no fun. But, but what's going to happen? They're going to start to take on the values of their coach. They're going to start to embody the character, the nature of the one who's leading them. This is what Jesus is doing with the Beatitudes. He's saying, look, my kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. It's on his way. In fact, it's starting to be established now because I'm here. There is no kingdom without a king and the king has come. So now the kingdom gets to expand. Now it gets to go forth. But this is what this kingdom is going to look like. It's not going to look like the kingdom you thought it would. It's not going to look like the kingdom of Israel. It's not going to look like David's kingdom did or Solomon's kingdom did. It's going to look like my kingdom. And you've got to understand it's going to look different. So what Jesus is really doing here is he's establishing a colony. He's establishing a colony from heaven. That, that heaven has a specific authority, that God is fully in charge and fully in control in heaven. And yes, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but God sent his son as his representative from heaven to come and begin expanding his authority here on earth, starting a colony. And so Jesus starts the colony and he has 12 disciples. And then by the time he dies and raises again, he's got 120 followers in the upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved. And all throughout Acts, we see the colony growing and expanding, right? And so what happened when you received Jesus? You may not have known it that day. The person who led you in the prayer may not have told you, and they may not even have understood it. But what happened when you received Jesus is you became a citizen of heaven on its earth colony. Right? And so the kingdom expands. Every time we add a new member to the family of God, the kingdom of God expands. Every time we, we choose to do something that reflects his will that's done in heaven, and we do it that way on earth, the kingdom of God expands just a little bit. It begins to take root. It begins to take hold. You see, his authority is now taking hold here in the way that it has authority there. So I want to show you one more passage of Scripture before we get to a a list of things that I want to give you today to set up our challenge. In Revelation 21, we see this this final picture of of eternity. 
This is towards the end. This is after the battles of Armageddon and after the Antichrist is thrown down and after Jesus wins total victory, after the new heaven and the new earth is created. And by the, by the way, this is actually talking about the new earth, which is heaven because it's where God's presence is and that'll blow your mind and we don't have time to get into all that theology. But just so you know, uh, Revelation 21, 22, John gets this vision of this day. He says, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, the day comes when we don't have to go to church. We're not going to go to church. We're not going to choose. Am I going to first service or am I going to second service today? Am I sleeping in or do I want to get stuff done today? Like you're not having to debate that, right? Like you, there, there is no church to go to because what is the church? The church is the place where we encounter the presence of God along with the people of God and God is glorified. In heaven, God's fully glorified. He's fully seen. His presence is fully there and is surrounded by his people. We don't have to gather intentionally around him one time a week. We're just always there. We're just always at church. Like if you've ever been like on that mission trip or that camp, and you're like, man, I wish every day could be like this. Like in that spiritual high, that spiritual zone. It's like, I don't ever want to go home. That's heaven, okay? It's not earth, but it's heaven. It's not real life today, but it's real life one day. Verse 23 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. In other words, the sun was just created to give us a picture of the glory of God. It's just a reflection. It's an image of his brilliance, of the light that emanates from his being. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What I want to do today is I want to show you three things that happen when God's kingdom comes to earth. When, when God's kingdom comes, when Jesus prays, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When that prayer is answered, these three things start to take place. They start to take root. You see, you are an ambassador of God's kingdom. You may not look at yourself that way. You may not have ever thought of it that way, but you are. You're a representative of his kingdom. And so part of your responsibility is to live out the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Now, there's a tension here. Uh, Bible scholars use this phrase, the already but not yet. You see, the kingdom of God is already because Jesus came and established it. It's already here, but it's not yet right? It's not fully established. It's not fully rooted. There, there, there are many things that take place in our daily lives that are outside the kingdom of God, that are outside of his will, right? Right now, we've got a whole lot of people in our church who are sick, who are believing God for healing for. And here's what I've been praying this week. God, let your kingdom come in their body. Because you see, in heaven, there's no sickness and there's no disease. Let your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, you see, we believe that healing is for today. We believe in a God who heals and who heals today. But the reality of the kingdom is all the things of the kingdom are already, but not yet. In other words, we don't always walk in healing on this earth. We don't always receive that. We don't always see that happen. Now, here's the danger of the already, but not yet theology, is if we hear already, but not yet, it's easy for us to default to not ever. And that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is already but not yet. It's not our, it, it, we, we can't say, okay, well, that's not today. That's the next life, 
right? We're pursuing the kingdom. We're believing God for the kingdom to come down. That's what we're praying, that his will will be done here just as it is in heaven. And so we're believing him for those things even when we don't see them all the time in our daily life. Does that make sense? The kingdom's already, but not yet. So three things that will happen when God's kingdom comes to earth. Number one, God is glorified. God is glorified. This may seem like common sense and a no-brainer, but I believe it needs to be said. God is fully glorified in heaven. What do I mean by fully glorified? I mean everybody in heaven sees him for exactly who he is. In his fullness. In the wonder of who he is. Everyone in heaven recognizes the completeness of what it means for him to be El Shaddai what it means for him to be El Elyon, the most high God. Like it's fully understood and fully grasped. Now on this outpost of heaven and this kingdom here, this colony, we don't fully grasp it, do we? We get a glimpse, we get pictures, we get ideas. Uh, but, but so anything we do that brings God greater glory is bringing the kingdom to earth. Anything we do when we enter into worship, that's not just something so we can show off. We've got some talented musicians. Praise God for talented musicians. That's not something we do just to show off that some people that we have in our church can sing a whole lot better than others of us, right? But thank God for people who can sing. But that's, we're not showing off those things. What are we doing? We believe that when we worship, we're actually bringing God glory. And when we're bringing him glory, we're bringing his kingdom down. We are fulfilling Jesus's prayer that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So anything we do to bring God glory, to, to point to him, whether that's in conversation, whether that's in action, whether that's serving someone, anything that we do to bring him glory is bringing his kingdom to earth. That he would be seen, that he would be worshiped, that he would be recognized is bringing his kingdom down. Revelation 21, 20, 22, put it this way. We read it again. It said, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. Can you imagine that day? How incredible is that going to be? We can't even articulate it, right? We can't put it into words what it's going to be like. But you know what Jesus said in the same sermon just a few verses before he gets to the Lord's Prayer? He looked at his followers, and he said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, I'm not the light of the world on my own. Why am I the light of the world? I'm the light of the world because the light of Jesus lives in me and shines through me, right? So that light that's in heaven, there's a piece of it on earth, and it's in me, and it's in you. And so when we let that light shine, when we let people see it, and what does it say? It says, so you let your light shine and glorify your Father in heaven. It brings glory to our Father in heaven when we let our light shine. So that is part of bringing the kingdom down. Revelation chapter 7 puts it this way, 14 chapters before. It says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, amen. Now listen to this list. These are the things that belong to our God. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and strength. And power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now check this out. It says that God, all those things belong to him, right? Strength and glory and power and wisdom and honor and all this stuff belongs to our God, which none of us would argue with that. But what do they say? When? They said forever and ever. Eternity past, eternity future, and right now today. These things belong to him. That glory belongs to him. It belongs to him in my life. That's the kingdom coming to earth. So point one, 
the thing that happens is God is glorified. I'm going to give you a 1B. I've never cheated like this before, but it needs to be said. 1B is Jesus is magnified. God is glorified. 1B is Jesus is magnified. They're the same, but they're not. I want to make sure it's specific. We understand that Jesus is magnified. Philippians 2 puts it this way. It tells us this incredible uh, idea of how Jesus was obedient to the will of God, even to death, how he humbled himself. He took on the very nature of a servant. And then verse 9, it says this. It says, therefore, because of what he did, God exalted him, him being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And that every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the reality is, church, everybody's going to worship Jesus. We just have a choice. Are we going to do it out of our free will in this life? Or are we going to do it when we come face to face with him and there's no reaction but to bow and worship? You see, what we're doing now is we bring the kingdom to earth. Is we're giving him the glory that he's already due before the day comes when we have to give it to him. The day is going to come. And so in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes down, God is glorified one and one B, Jesus is magnified. He's seen and worshiped for who he is. Second thing that happens when the kingdom comes to earth is sin is abolished. Sin is abolished. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of times we make the mistake or the culture makes the mistake of this being the thing that is most associated with Christianity. And it shouldn't be. You see, sin being abolished is not the goal of Christianity. Sin being abolished is the byproduct of Christianity. You see, the goal of Christianity is that God is glorified and Jesus is magnified. That people see him for who he is. But when people see him for who he is, guess what happens? We stop sinning. When we recognize who God truly is, when we see him in his fullness and in his splendor, that sin no longer has any allure. Uh, I'll butcher the quote, but C.S. Lewis talks about how we are far too easily pleased, how we're settling for mud pies when, when a cruise at sea is available to us, right? That, that we, sin is us just simply settling for something that barely kind of sort of satisfies when ultimate deep satisfaction is available to us. And that deep satisfaction is found in relationship with Jesus Christ. So the goal of City Church is not that everybody in this room would stop sinning. The goal of City Church is that everybody in this room would see God for who he is. But if we see God for who he is, guess what happens? Sin begins to lose its hold on us. It begins to lose its power. So in the kingdom of God, sin is abolished, not because it's forbidden, not because law is explicitly stated you can't do this, because as soon as that's stated, then there's something inside me and inside you that says, hey, I want to go do that right? Like when I was in Bible college, we, one of the first things that we were told is there was a rule that you could not get on the roof of our dorms. And if you got on the roof of our dorm, there was a $500 fine. So guess what we spent all semester scheming to do? Get on the roof of our dorm. Would I have ever as a freshman in college decided, hey, we got to get on the roof of our dorm? No. Why'd we do it? Because we were stupid and rebellious idiots going to worship Jesus, right? It was a Bible college, but we still had a rebellious nature, See, that's the power of the law. The law is powerless to change our lives. And so Christianity does not exist to abolish sin. Christianity exists to glorify Jesus. But as Jesus is glorified, sin loses its power. So most of us in this room have already received Christ. 
Maybe all of us. Certainly the vast majority. And so since we've already received Christ, since we've already experienced his salvation, we now, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, have the equipment, have the ability to stop sinning. And yet most of us still have some sin in our lives, don't we? Myself included. So if you want the kingdom to come to earth, part of that is taking up your sword and going to war with the sin in you. Here's the mistake we make. I take up my sword and I go to war with the sin in you, right? This is, this is where Christians miss it. We go to battle with the sin we see in everybody else. You need to stop this. And what Jesus say? He said, man, quit worrying about the sliver in your friend's eye when you got a whole plank sticking out of yours, right? Christianity is taking up my sword and fighting against my sin. Because that's a fight that'll last a lifetime. That's a fight that'll keep me busy, right? But if I'll deal with mine, what'll it do? That's going to empower somebody else to deal with theirs, to see me dealing with mine, to be inspired by that, and to go to war with the sliver in their eye. This is the way he's designed it. So we glorify God in the kingdom. As God's glorified, then we begin to become aware of the stuff in us that doesn't match up with his kingdom. His Holy Spirit begins to put his finger on stuff, and it's called conviction. And he says, look, this isn't acceptable for you anymore. And so now when God does that, I don't ignore that. I don't hope it just goes away. I say, you know what? I'm taking up my sword, and I'm going to war. I'm going to cut this thing off. I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to make sure that my life lines up with his kingdom. This is the way that God's designed it. We couldn't do it before Jesus. They couldn't get rid of sin before Jesus. They tried and they tried and they failed and they failed, just like most of us have tried and tried and failed and failed because we try in our own strength. You do it in your own strength, you'll never get anywhere. Not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit, says the Lord. If you do it in his strength, You can put that stuff to death. So Revelation 21, 27, talking about that day, says this, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now here's the good news. When it says, nor will anybody enter it who does what is shameful or deceitful, if that was to be taken literal, that'd mean there's nobody there right? What, what is he saying? He's saying, because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to my account, when God looks at me, he does not see the shameful and deceitful things that I've done. So I'm welcome in his presence. doesn't mean I've never committed anything shameful or deceitful. Committed a lot of it. Probably will commit some more, unfortunately, as I go to war with that stuff to see it abolished. There, there's, there'll probably be some more unless I die today, right? It's probably going to happen. I'd rather stay around for a little while, God. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, but, but the day comes where all that stuff has been eradicated, where it's all been washed away, where, you, where the price has been paid, and we stand before God pure and holy, and now he says there's not going to be anything else deceitful. There's not going to be anything else corrupt. There's not going to be anything else ungodly. There's not going to be any sin in that place. So the more we get rid of sin here, the more that this looks like that. Does that make sense? So we bring glory to God, we magnify Jesus, we get rid of sin, and then number three thing that happens in the kingdom, the last thing I want to show you today, is that people are unified. God is glorified, sin is abolished, and number three, people are unified. We know people are unified because there's no more sin, right? There's no more division, there's no more junk that separates us, there's no more envy, there's no more jealousy, there's no more covetousness, there's none of that 
in heaven because God is fully glorified. We just read about it in Revelation uh, that a day comes when everybody worships together from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, from every color. We looked at how, man, every generation is represented, how every sinful background is represented in heaven. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a region in Greece that was dealing with one very specific problem. A lot of Paul's letters he wrote to address multiple problems. The, the letter to the Galatians was written to address one problem. Their problem was they had two groups. They had two churches. They had Jewish Christians in Galatia, and they had Greek or Gentile Christians in Galatia, and they didn't connect. They didn't like each other. They didn't worship. We worship differently. We, we have different expectations. We have a different culture. We have a different way to, to talk to God. And so these two groups could never get it together. And Paul writes his letter to promote unity and to condemn the religiosity that had allowed them to raise up walls to keep themselves separated from one another. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, In Jesus there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Say all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. He says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, God made a covenant with a guy named Abraham. He made Abraham the father of the Jewish people. And he made promises that your descendants are going to be heirs to these promises. And then because of Jesus, the rest of us, if we receive Jesus, we get grafted into that promise. So God doesn't see Jew or Gentile because he looks at all of us and he sees us all as Jews. My wife for my birthday uh, got me a 23andMe uh, DNA test. So I took my DNA test and confirmed what I already knew. I have no Jewish blood in me, right? There were some things I didn't know, like some things that I expected to be there that didn't show up and some things I didn't expect that did show up. But I, I am not a Jew by, by any like distant relative. I got none of it. But when God looks at me, he sees me as Abraham's heir because I've been grafted in. Abraham's righteousness has been credited to my account. Jesus' righteousness has been credited to my account. I've been granted that covenant. And so Paul writes to these Jews and these Greeks who just don't get it. He says, don't you understand? Jesus came to get rid of all this nonsense division, all this superficial stuff. You see, all that junk is is just surface stuff. We look different. We talk different. We use different words. We cook different. We smell different. I don't know. Like, like we got all these different things, right, that we hold against each other. And he says, none of that matters. That's all just stuff on the surface. What matters is who you are in here. And who you are in here is a child of God. Who you are in here is, a, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the sanctuary walking around. You're an emissary for my kingdom. And so you got to be together. So the more that we walk in unity, the more we bring the kingdom down. What does that mean? That means we quit talking junk about each other. It means we quit pointing fingers at each other. It means we quit looking at the 2% that we disagree with this other church, and we celebrate the 98% that we agree. Right? doesn't mean that, that they may not be wrong in some of that 2%, and we may not be wrong in some of our 2%, and maybe we're both wrong in some of our 98%, right? Like, we're, we maybe missed it together in some things. We're going to get to heaven and realize, okay, we were off on some stuff. But that's okay, because the vast majority of it, we got right, and that's Jesus. So when the kingdom comes down, God is glorified. 
When the kingdom comes down, sin is abolished. When the kingdom comes down, people walk in unity. No matter our color, no matter our background, no matter our education level, no, no matter our denominational preference, no matter which way we celebrate communion or baptism or which way we worship or if we raise our hands or we don't raise our hands or if we sing out or we're silent, like none of that stuff matters in Christ, right? Yes, we need to pursue glorifying him to the best that we can, and we need to pursue doing it the most closest way to the way that God ordained for it to be done. But ultimately, man, we got to celebrate. We got brothers and sisters, and we need to walk in unity with one another. So here's the challenge this week, church, and it's a three-part challenge. Told you they were going to get tougher as we go. So here's the challenge, and it's going to require some thought on your part. Last week, I made it easy. You didn't have to think. You just had to look at a list and just do it each day. This week, you're actually going to have to engage critical thinking. Ooh. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to intentionally practice the kingdom at least once in all three of these areas. So I want you to intentionally, when I say intentionally, this is not what you normally do. This is not your default week. Hunter, man, what a great worship encouragement. He talked about not just settling for, for business as usual, right? For Christianity as usual. So this challenge is you don't get to just do you as usual. You as usual may be good, right? But we're going we're gonna to push for even a little better. So here's what I want. Intentionally, we're going to glorify God or magnify Jesus some way this week that you don't normally do it. You may choose to do that in song. You may choose to do that in prayer. You may choose to do that in conversation. But I want you to intentionally find some way to bring God glory that you don't normally do. That's outside of your normal comfort zone, outside of your, your regular routine. Secondly, I want you to intentionally find some way to abolish sin that isn't just part of your regular now, for some of us, we got a whole list of things to pick from, right? We got a whole buffet. Uh, and if you decide you want to go back for seconds, praise God, man. Take some more off of that list. But we're, we're going to abolish something together. Some of us, we might have to look a little deeper to find something that we're struggling with. I believe the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you if you ask. We're going to intentionally see some opportunity to sin that we would normally default to and normally take and recognize, you know what, God, I'm not doing this. I'm not giving into this temptation. I'm taking up my sword, and I'm going to battle. Because I want to be a representative of your kingdom. Because I want your kingdom to come down. Because I want your will to be done in my life the same way that it's done in heaven. I'm not going to partake in this because you're greater than this thing. You're more satisfying. Your presence is more for me than this sin is. Maybe that means you don't open your mouth to talk about that person at work that gets on everybody's nerves. Maybe it means you don't laugh at that dirty joke that everybody spreads around or you don't relay it, you don't hit forward. Uh, maybe, maybe it means there's something that nobody sees and nobody's aware of that you struggle with. You're gonna go to war with that thing this week. I don't know what your sin struggle is. All of us struggle differently, but we all have struggles. Maybe for us, it's, maybe for you, it's the sin of pride. Feeling like you got it together, feeling like you've earned God's acceptance and self-righteousness. And you're gonna go to war with that self-righteousness and recognize that only because of Jesus are you welcome in his presence. But we're going to intentionally abolish some sin in our lives this week. Intentionally glorify God. And then number three, I want you to intentionally do something to bring unity to people. So maybe that means you've got somebody that there's some, some awkwardness with. Maybe it's not even awkwardness. Maybe it's full-blown hatred, full-blown bitterness. Maybe there's a relationship that's been in a really unhealthy place for a really long time. I want you to take a step to pursue unity. That may require some courage, that may require some boldness, that may require you to be prayed up, pray it up, put it before God, 
But I want you to take a step. Maybe that, maybe that step is simply writing a letter, and maybe you don't even mail the letter this week. Maybe that's enough courage for you this week, and that's as far as you go, but you're going to mail it next week, right? But you're going to take a step to pursue unity. Maybe you don't have some, some nasty, overhanging relationship with somebody that needs restoration. So, so maybe for you, it's simply, man, there's a dude across the street I've never introduced myself to. So I'm going to get out of my house. And go knock on somebody's door and hope that they answer. And, you know, they probably think I'm Amazon, but I'm just going to introduce myself and say, hey, we're neighbors. Let's get to know each other a little bit. Right? But anything we do to pursue unity is bringing God's kingdom down here to earth. Maybe it's not even that. Maybe you're going to trade phone numbers with somebody else from church today, and you're actually going to have somebody over this week. Or you're actually going to initiate getting together with somebody outside of church and actually getting to know one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what your list is. I don't know what it needs to be. But my challenge is this week, find some way to bring God glory that you don't normally. Find some way to abolish sin that you don't normally. And find someone to bring unity that you don't normally do. Three things. Seven days. So you got majority of days, you don't have to do anything. But three days, you got to do something. Or one day, if you wait till Saturday, you're going to have a busy Saturday. Right? Um, We're going to do these things. Why? Because it's worth it. Because as we practically take steps for earth to look like heaven, what we're doing is we're inviting God to answer Jesus' prayer in our life. Can you imagine what would happen if, say, what is it, 75, 80 of us in this room today? What if 75, 80 of us walked this out this week and made more room for the kingdom of God? What would begin to happen? What would worship look like next week if the kingdom came down in 80 people's lives this week in ways that it didn't come down last week? What could God begin to do in us if we actually intentionally took steps to say, you know what, this isn't just a prayer Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago that I memorized when I was seven years old, but this is actually a guideline for how I can go out and live my life. And God, I want your kingdom to come down in me. God, I want your will to be done in me. I want this to happen in me even this week. What would happen if we would do that? I want every hand up next week when we ask who did the challenge. Man, I want us all to say, maybe, and that doesn't mean you had to do all three parts, man, but you better find one of these you can do. Like, that's the lowest, that's the lowest common denominator, right? I believe you can do all three. I believe we can. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you're going to do it, and you're going to be like, man, what else can I do? And there's some of you, you're going to be like five, six, seven things you do this week. You're going to find one every day that I can do to bring his kingdom down. You're going to get addicted to it. You're going to get into it. You're going to say, you know what? Well, how could I have ever lived without this awareness that I can actually bring his kingdom down in my life, in my family, in my home, in my church? I'm fired up for this. I don't know about y'all, but I'm fired up. I'm excited to see what you do. I'm excited to see the way we pursue God's glory, dealing with sin, and bringing unity to people. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, I thank you so much for an amazing church family. God, for incredible people who love you, who know you, who honor you, who worship you. And so God, I pray right now that you would allow this message to to penetrate our hearts. God, this would not just be something that, that comes between our ears and that we hear in our mind, but God, that it would actually penetrate our soul that we would be caused, compelled, inspired to live it out. God, we want your kingdom to come. We want to be a church that looks like heaven. We want to be a church for for all generations, for all sinful backgrounds, for all colors. So God, we ask that your kingdom would come in City Church in those ways, that we would live this out, we would flesh that out, that we would see lives radically changed for your glory. God, that we would see people of every generation come and contribute the things you've made unique for their generation. 
God, we want to see every color represented here. God, that this would be a church that practices and walks in, in racial unity. God, we want your kingdom to come. And we want your will to be done. God, we can't wait to get to heaven. We know it's going to be incredible and it's going to be amazing. But Lord, let us not default into saying one day all this stuff will be great. Let us pursue it now. Because Jesus prayed, let your kingdom come today. So make us representatives of that kingdom. Let us expand that kingdom for your glory. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name.